awesome. Rhetorical question, should I serve? Yes, yes you should. All right, well, I will uh, keep the rest of the announcements brief. Um, for those of you who attend the Monday prayer meeting, if you, if you don't and you're able to, please come out. Uh, the time has been changed to 11 a.m., so I believe it was previously at noon. Uh, Going to be moving an hour forward to kind of free up the afternoon a little bit. Still out in the youth room, out back, straight behind the sanctuary, so you can't miss it. Um, and then for our beloved Pastor Vince, um, a lot of folks have come forward asking about a memorial service, and there's been some talks regarding that, um, and because of the season that we're in and how busy folks are and just the way that the next couple Saturdays line up, uh, we'll be expecting to do that in January, so probably in the early part of January. So just to give you guys a heads up, those of you that have been asking or will be attending that, we will be getting back to you with more details, but please just be continuing to, pr to pray for his family. And uh, give thanks for his uh, wonderful example. Amen? Amen. Amen. And then, finally, I have some announcements for you parents. So, ready? So, uh, the uh, Christmas dinner, December 17th, coming up. I assume I'll see all of you guys there. Uh, kids are going to be doing cookie decorating uh, after dinner. So, they'll eat with us. And then they'll be doing cookie decorating out in the classroom. So, that'll be very cool. You can bring your kids. Um, also, as you know, we are uh, remodeling our classrooms, and the projects are coming along awesome. So thank you guys for your support. Uh, my wife, Miss Michaela, is going to be uh, painting some awesome murals in the new K through fifth classroom, and she's got uh, some really cool set up or stuff set up in there. Um, and she would like some help. So if you guys can paint in the lines, uh, get a hold of her. Uh, there's going to be a a post on the kids' Instagram and the kids' Facebook, or you can see her for any details and dates. She's in the back right now, but um, uh, you can just go and talk to her if you would like to come help paint or you have kids that are able to paint in the lines, please do. And then December 19th, which is two Sundays from now, there's going to be a volunteer, children's volunteer meeting in um, the classroom out back after church. Going to be going over uh, the new curriculum so very excited about that. Uh, so if you guys are current volunteers and you're going to be teaching, uh, that's a, a time to come out and learn how to use the new curriculum. And then we have a super awesome thing coming up, uh, as you guys know. I think last year we did uh, the Light of the World with the kids up here. Um, and this year we will again be having the kids do a song for us for Christmas. Uh, so next Sunday, if you have children, we are going to hold them against their will for just a few minutes after church to practice in here, if that's all right with you guys. Um, so we'll bring them in here. If you guys wouldn't mind hanging around an extra five minutes, which I know you do anyway, then uh, praise God. We'll just let them do their thing, and then they'll be released from the stage. So sound good? All right. Thus concludes the announcements. So uh, we're going to be in the book of John again this morning. Chapter 5 we'll be picking up. Open the Word together. If you need a Bible, there's one in a chair somewhere in front of you. Or if you have a phone, that works too. John chapter 5, we'll be making our way from verse 19 through 29 this morning. John 5. 
All right. And also, I saw some new faces today that I haven't seen before. If you are a visitor or if you're new, we're glad you're here. Uh, you can find more information about us on the website, calvarynapa.org, or you can uh, ask anybody, and they'll be happy to tell you who we are and what we're about. Hopefully, uh, the Word of God will make that clear for us anyway, but uh, we're glad you're here. So let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you that we are able to come and meet with your body here in this place, that we're able to meet with you. We thank you, Lord, for your great mercy and compassion toward us. God, we thank you that you have been faithful throughout all of history to your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, God, that we have it in plain English before us, that we might know who you are, that we might know your heart and your desire and your will for us. God, we thank you that you gave that which was most precious to you to purchase us, Lord. You shed the blood of your perfect son to purchase this people for yourself. And we stand today perfected because of him. We rejoice in that, God. We give you thanks. We ask that you would speak mightily to us by your word. Father, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, encourage us, and renew our minds, God, as we seek after you. We thank you that you loved us first, God. We're here for you. We're here for the glory of Christ, and it's in his name that we pray and give thanks. Amen. 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 So John 15 through 29, if you guys are note-taker title folk, uh, today's message is God incarnate. God incarnate. So I'm going to preface you guys, this is not a theologically simple section, it is pretty dense. Um, but we rejoice in that. We get to observe what it means that Jesus is God in the flesh. Sometimes I think we can kind of, we hear this, we accept it, but we perhaps don't consider it as deeply as we should. And so today we're going to be taking a look at that. So try and bear with me. Absolutely, it is theologically dense. It is Christ-dense, but there is great joy and great hope for us in these truths. And by no means will there be an applicationless message today as we dig into some theology. Never the case. So if you guys remember, we left off in verse 18 of chapter 5. It says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So there have been now multiple accusations brought against the Lord, uh, both of which are punishable by death, and the Jews will be seeking to carry out that punishment at every opportunity that they can. And now, regarding these things, Christ making himself equal with God, if there was any mystery or question left about this whatsoever, it's about to disappear in a very quick hurry. Jesus is going to make a list of statements about himself that must have had the jaws of the Jews on the floor and their hearts in a rage of fury because the claims he is about to make are definitive, thorough, absolute communication of who he truly is. He is God. Amen? Okay, good. We're all in agreement. So it is right for us, it is fitting for us, that we too should marvel at what he is about to say. Not in the same way with rage and fury, 
but with awe and wonder, especially as we enter into this Christmas season or Advent season, right, where we focus our attention on the incarnation, God coming in the form of man and the coming return of Christ as we look forward. There are few passages that better demonstrate the incomprehensible reality that God became a man and dwelt among men, that God became near in the person of Jesus Christ, that the everlasting God, the Son, took on flesh, mortal flesh. And so Jesus doesn't just say to his opponents, I am God, right? That's the, that's the great uh, reservation of the world. Well, he didn't actually say, I am God. No, he did not. Fortunately, he goes so far beyond such a simple statement that he leaves absolutely no room for confusion as to who he is declaring himself to be. He doesn't leave one hint of ambiguity and not one possibility of mistaking what he is saying. It's almost as if he would have said, I am God. He would have been less clear than saying what he is about to say. And my friends, we cannot take these truths for granted. We can't take these truths for granted. Because I believe we can at times become so accustomed to hearing biblical truth, right? Hearing doctrine, that we can neglect the glorious mystery of the incarnation. Like I said, I know for myself personally, I don't consider it like I should. I don't marvel at it like I should. I'm not as amazed by the condescension of our Savior as I should be, that he graciously left his perfect and heavenly estate to become a man. The reason we don't see this rightly is because we don't see how lowly we truly are. Fortunately, that won't be the core of our passage today. You guys were here when Pastor Rob preached through Romans, so you've had your fair share of uh, smashing over the head with depravity. But uh, for God to become a man is the most incomprehensible thing that the mind can conceive of. And if you sit in your chair this morning and you believe that Jesus is God incarnate, that he is God in flesh, that he is the Christ, the only Savior, blessed are you. Blessed are you. That is by God's gracious revelation of himself to you. Amen. Amen. He has opened your heart. He has opened your eyes to behold his perfect son. Because, my friends, the world thinks all kinds of things about Jesus, right? And we know this. We've had these conversations, and they get real bizarre real quickly, right? He was, he was right on this, but he didn't really mean that. That was a cultural thing, and he was a you know, pretty decent guy, perhaps, but he definitely didn't say he was God, right? And even if he did, he definitely wasn't, right? That's a, it's a ludicrous idea to think that Jesus was God. And yet, those with eyes to see and ears to hear, cannot see anything other than what is clearly before us. Jesus is not a God. He is not one of many. He is not like God. He is, he always was, and he always will be. As Colossians 1 tells us, he is the image of the invisible God. And that's going to, what's going to carry us through our text today. Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. What are the implications of this? Well, he's going to make it very clear for us. And that is his response to the Jews, the Jewish leadership this morning. Last week, they accused him of breaking the Sabbath. They accused him of blasphemy, calling God his own father. 
says, well, if that was too much for you, just wait, right? The Billy Mays here, just wait. There is more. There is so much more. So join me in considering the incarnation, the perfect communication of God in human form. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So first, Jesus' work is the Father's work. Remember, we talked about this last week. My Father and I are working. He didn't just heal that crippled man according to his own separate will, apart from the Father. It was according to God's will, and because the Father and the Son are one, they do the very same things. Jesus says he only does what he sees the Father doing, and he does likewise. His decisions are the Father's, his words are the Father's, and his works are the Father's works. This is so wonderful. This is why it's so vital that we pay attention to the life and ministry of Jesus, because in him, the invisible, providential working of the sovereign God straps on sandals and walks before our very eyes. We are able to see God working. He says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. The Jews, they come against him to question his authority, and his response is, I have more authority than you can even imagine. The very same authority as the Father, and it was the Father's will to heal on the Sabbath, to do good on the Sabbath, and so I have done it. Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly, as we're told, for perfect obedience was all that he could do, being himself divine, being himself perfect. And at the same time, the perfect obedience that was the requirement of God for us, the requirement that we broke, and the requirement that Jesus met on our behalf. He did it perfectly. And because of that obedience, Philippians 2 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen? Amen. <laughs> that obedience, the obedience of Christ, is born out of this divine love between the Father and the Son, which, though it is far beyond our ability to understand or comprehend the love between the Father and the Son, we have now been brought into that love, that eternal love that existed in triune harmony. We have been adopted into that love because of Christ. Think on that for a moment. We could stop right here and go home. We have been brought into the perfect love between God the Father and God the Son. John 15, 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And again, John 17, 23, The Father loved us even as he loved the Son. Can you believe that? Jesus loves his church 
as God loves him. And the Father loves us as he loves his perfect son. That is how complete the work of Christ was, that God sees us in the very same way he sees his son, perfected in him. And that love is here in verse 20. It says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. This verse alone, guys, makes certain that Jesus is divine. Why? Who can know all that God is doing? I, I don't even know what I'm doing half the time. I don't know what I'm doing right now. I'm just following my notes. I'm praying that the Lord's going to use it, right? Who can comprehend all that God is doing? Who can comprehend the mind of God but God himself? He says he shows him all that he is doing. Amazing. But consider this awesome display of love. The love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for his bride, the church. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So the Father in love reveals all that he is doing on earth to the incarnate Son, and the Son in love revealed to his followers what the Father was doing. Awesome, right? We have access to the mind and heart of God through the pages of Scripture, because in love, Christ has made us friends of the living God. Christ has made us sons and daughters of the living God. Amen. He has declared the Father to us. He has shown the Father's heart to us in a way that we can actually imitate. Praise God. As Jesus does what he sees the Father doing, so we ought to do what we see Jesus doing. Because he loved us, so we ought to love one another. Because he did good, so we ought to do good. Obedience is born out of love. Out of love. Because he first loved us, we love him. So Jesus is only doing what the Father is doing. And he says to the Jews, you think healing a lame man was something? You think healing physical sickness was something? You have not seen anything yet. Greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel, verse 20 says. What kind of works? Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So not only does Jesus have authority to physically heal on the Sabbath, but he has authority to raise the dead physically and he has authority to raise the dead spiritually, to give eternal life. And in comparison, the latter is far greater than the former. So the natural state of humanity, this passage will make it very clear, is deadness. Alive physically, but dead spiritually. Not just broken, not just sick, but dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 tells us. And so it is, in fact, a resurrection that must take place to pass from death to life. And resurrecting the spiritually dead is a power that God alone has in himself. Jesus is able to give us life that we do not naturally possess. 
Though we breathe and walk and talk and have the appearance of being alive, we do not in of ourselves have the kind of life that he has. Eternal, sinless, perfect, self-existing life. And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to give it. He came to give it. John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Amen? I feel like I'm only quoting from John, but it just perfectly all comes together. We've got to keep this reality in mind. Jesus came to give life. Because, my friends, as you know, there is no shortage of lesser things to distract us from what really matters eternally. The mission of Christ, the mission of the church. See, we read in the pages of Scripture that the crowds that followed Jesus were so often so enamored with his miracles that they failed to see the purpose of them. They failed to see beyond the miracles. They failed to see what was going on underneath. Eternal life, resurrection from deadness to life and perfection is the greatest miracle. Amen? Do we really believe that? Is that the greatest miracle that we can witness? Which is more amazing, to tell a lame man to get up and walk, not lame socially, physically lame, or to say, I give you eternal life? Which is more miraculous? This is the greatest miracle. This is the greater work that Christ came to do and the greater work that we have been entrusted with as his ambassadors, not that we accomplish it in of ourselves, but we are to guard and proclaim the good news. We are to guard and proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. Amen? Amen. This is the miracle that we are looking to see at all costs. We know from Romans 10, 17 that faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Wherever his word is faithfully upheld and the good news of his salvation is proclaimed, God is doing the truly miraculous. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. We are seeing that happen day after day. He is doing the most miraculous work that is possible in a human life. He is able to give everlasting life to whomever he wills. And it is received simply through hearing and believing his word. What power. What a miracle. So Christ only does what the Father does. He came and lived perfectly the Father's will for us to see. He came with the words and power of eternal life, and he has authority to give that life as he wills. If you have received that life, he has seen fit to give it to you. But his authority does not end there. We're only just getting started. We're only 20 minutes in. We still have another hour to go. His authority does not end there. The next eight verses are a key section for the Christian in our own understanding of God, our God, and in engaging with the world with his truth. Because they declare to us that God reigns in the person of Christ. The Father is not napping, right? He is working. He has always been working. He is working until now. 
But he has directed our attention to the one that he sent for us. And he has made him the preeminent one. He has made him the focal point. He will judge the world through Christ. He is honored through Christ. He gives eternal life through Christ. He has made Jesus the center of everything that exists, not to the neglect of the Father's name, but to the glory of the Father's name. He is pleased that we fix our eyes on his Son. Verse 22, we love, guys, that Jesus gives life, amen? But here's one that we're not always so psyched about. Verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, That's right. It is Jesus who will judge the world, which is quite ironic since one of the most common misconceptions in the world about him is that he doesn't judge anybody, so we ought not to, right? Jesus doesn't judge, so who am I to judge, right? The fact is, he is in fact the judge. He is the only judge that actually matters in all of the universe before whom every human being will stand and give an account for the things that they've done. Verse 23, to the end that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Father cannot be separated from the Son. God cannot be known apart from Christ He cannot be honored apart from Christ. This calls our attention back to the conversation with the Samaritan woman in John 4. Remember, those who worship the Father must worship in spirit and in truth. The truth concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the preeminent one. Guys, worship is not a free-for-all. And I don't mean that we can't not lift our hands or keep our hands down or be on our faces. Yes, We are free in a sense to worship, but worship is not a free for all. We have been given the great privilege of calling on God as Father because and only because we are in Christ. There is no other access to him. And so anyone that says, I worship God, but I do it in my own way, is deceived. Truth is narrow. Truth is exclusive, right? Truth is offensive. If someone says, I have my own relationship with God, you believe in Jesus, I do things a little differently, the fact of the matter is they worship a God that they do not know. For there is only one God, and there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so to deny Christ is to deny the Father. They cannot be separated. We must have him. And to have him, as Pastor Rob loves to say, is to have all. Amen? Is to have all. For verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Our friend David Guzik puts it this way. True belief in the Father is belief in the Son. And true belief in the Son is belief in the Father. Inseparable. Whoever hears the words of Christ, and I quote, I am the resurrection and the life, and believes the Father who sent him, 
And I quote, this is my beloved son. Hear him. That person has eternal life. The one who will not hear the son, by implication, is condemned already, will come into judgment, will not escape death. But for the one who believes, you have passed from death to life already. You have already passed from death to life. You have eternal life. You have received unconditional forgiveness. Notice here, friends, there are no works attached to the promise of God. Whoever hears and believes has eternal life. This is the true good news. This is the true gospel. Free salvation by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, apart from works. Now, I hear amens, praise God, but I'm concerned guys, that we may yawn at this. I've heard this before, right? Grace alone, faith alone, right? It's not old news, it's good news, yes? Yes, it's not old news, it's good news. Free salvation by grace alone. Now, I I really went back and forth on bringing this in, but I just, I couldn't help but but pull this into the conversation, guys, because I truly believe that this is crucial for us to understand. Without this doctrine, we have nothing. This is what Protestants stand on. This is what Bible-believing, what we'd call Reformed Christians believe, that salvation is by faith in Christ, that we cannot merit or earn our salvation in any way. We cannot add to it. We cannot subtract to it. Jesus gives life to whom he wills. But, brothers and sisters, There are in this world, according to Google, 1.2 billion Roman Catholics on this earth. That is more than there are Protestants. That if they are to hold to official Roman Catholic doctrine, must affirm that anyone who believes in salvation by faith alone is condemned, anathema, damned to hell. I'm not making this up. I will read from you briefly from the Council of Trent, session 6, January 13th, 1547, under Pope Paul III. I'm going to quote directly from the document. I read it myself. No one ought to flatter himself with faith alone, thinking that by faith alone he is made an heir and will inherit or will obtain the inheritance. Let no one think this way. It says, concerning justification, canon 9, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema, damned to hell. Canon 11, If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins or that the grace by which we are justified is only the good will of God, let him be anathema, damned to hell. If anyone says that he will for certain with an absolute and infallible certainty have that great gift of perseverance to the end, 
let him be anathema. If you believe in your chair right now, if you know that you are bound for heaven, according to this document, you are deceived, you are headed for hell. Canon 20, if anyone says that a man who is justified and however perfect is not bound to observe the commandments of God in the church, but only to believe, as if the gospel were a bare and absolute promise of eternal life, without the condition of observing the commandments, let him be anathema. If you believe that God's gift of salvation is a free gift in Christ, according to official Roman Catholic doctrine, you are headed for hell. If anyone says, Canon 24, that justice received is not preserved and not also increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of his increase, let him be anathema. One more. Canon 27. If anyone says that there is no mortal sin except that of unbelief, or that grace once received is not lost through any other sin, however grievous and enormous, except by that of unbelief, let him be anathema. So if you are saved by faith and then you commit a sin that is considered mortal and you don't believe you have now fallen out of salvation, you are damned. And this absolutely breaks my heart. It crushes me because the words of Jesus say absolutely, clearly, 100% otherwise. He says, he who hears and believes has eternal life, has passed from death to life. It is done. It is finished. It cannot be undone. It cannot be merited. It cannot be held onto by good works, and it cannot be lost by sinning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's the good news. That is what we rest in. If we don't have that, we are under the burden of law. We cannot have peace. We cannot have security. All that we can have is the weight of our own works on our shoulders, crushing us to despair. The promise of eternal life is so certain, it is so fixed, that Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus destroyed the power of death for the children of God. He has done away with it, and he's delivered us from slavery to the fear of death. We have been set free. This is the authority and power of our Savior. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. His voice is able to make us alive. And the sheep that the Father has given to the Son in love, they know the voice of their shepherd, and they hear his voice, and they follow him. And he gives them eternal life. And he will raise us up on the last day. Amen? He said, I will raise them up on the last day. Not unless they screw it up. They hear my voice and they follow me and I will raise them up on the last day. And so our full confidence is in him, the self-existent one, the great I am. It is not in me, it is in the God who is from everlasting to everlasting and is inherently alive forever. I was thinking about this this week and my mind was just oozing out of my ears 
because each one of us is dependent on something else, someone else for life. We didn't choose when and where we came into this world. We have a beginning, and we will most certainly have an end in this world, and it is inconceivable, it's unfathomable for us to think of a being that is outside of time. He is not bound by time. He is not bound by the beginning of life and end of life. He has it in himself. John Calvin, since we're on the topic of Reformation, beautifully puts it this way. I could not have said it better. The life of God is made manifest in Christ. The life granted to the Son to give is now poured into us. And further, the glory of the incarnation. What has been hidden in Excuse me, I need some water. What has been hidden in God is now revealed to us in Christ as a man. And life, which was formerly inaccessible, is now placed before our eyes. Beautiful words. Christ is the work of God before our eyes. He is the life of God before our eyes. He is the salvation of God before our eyes. And he is the future judgment and resurrection of God before our eyes. We close with verses 27 through 29. 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus has authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. I believe one of the brothers asked me about this a couple weeks ago. What is the Son of Man? What does the Son of Man mean? Who is the Son of Man? This is a title for the Messiah. This is the title that Jesus most used to refer to himself. It's found in the prophet Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. That is a clear reference to the deity and supremacy of the coming Christ some 500 years before his earthly birth. He says this in verse 13 of Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel prophesied that the Son of Man would be given glory. Who receives glory? God alone. To be served by all the peoples of the earth, every tongue, tribe, and nation, and have everlasting dominion over an everlasting kingdom. And so Jesus does. Amen? My brother. Saved from the flames of talking a lot. Thank you so much, man. I should have been proactive. Austin Kava. Thank you so much, man. That's what it's like to receive Christ. Thirsty and needy. Refreshed and made whole. And so Jesus does have everlasting dominion over an everlasting kingdom. And so he has authority to execute judgment over his kingdom. Yes, he is the king. And John writes, Jesus speaking, verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming 
when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, Jesus will bring about the final resurrection from the dead. It is certain he is returning and he will dispense to all their eternal fate. Everyone that has ever died will be resurrected and will receive an eternal body. There is some confusion on this subject that we will just be floating materialist spirits for eternity. This is not so. Every human being will receive an eternal body, but there is going to be a vast difference between what these bodies are for. Those who trusted in Christ, apart from themselves, apart from their works, and thus bore good fruit through him, will be resurrected to life and everlasting glory. The good that we do is a byproduct of our justification. It is because Christ lives in us that we can do anything good. Amen? Apart from him, you can do nothing. Amen. You guys are good Protestants. <laughs> to life and everlasting glory. And those who rejected him and continued on in their evil deeds, continued on trusting in themselves, will be resurrected to judgment, to shame and everlasting contempt, the book of Daniel says. If you are in any way, any way this morning, uncertain about which group you will inhabit, you need not be. We can have certainty. You can be certain that if you are in your seat and you are not trusting in Christ, that you will be resurrected to everlasting contempt. But that need not be the case because the grace of God has appeared to all people in flesh, in his son Jesus Christ, who through his obedience and death for sin and resurrection has secured eternal salvation for all who would come to him and receive it by faith. You cannot earn it. You cannot merit it. You cannot retain it or add anything to it, but you can freely receive it by believing him right where you are. You don't have to come forward. You don't have to throw a pine cone in the fire. You don't have to kneel before the steps. That would be very awkward for me. Right where you are, you can confess your need for a Savior and be saved from punishment by his grace. It's that simple. That is what the church historically men have died horrific, torturous deaths to defend and deliver to us this doctrine, this word, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Receive the life that only he has and only he can give. I wanted to close in Revelation 7, but there's actually an awesome post that I saw online. So if you guys want to turn to Revelation 7, we'll read that too. But I'm going to pull this bad boy up because this is just wonderful. I'll give myself some time while you guys go to Rev 7. Okay, good, I found it. I got nervous there. Revelation 7. I love closing with Revelation. This is the culmination of all things that we hope for and anticipate. Chapter 9. The Apostle John writing. Almost there. Sorry, verse 9. My bad. Chapter 7, verse 9. Forgive me. I am imperfect. I need a Savior. 
verse 9 of chapter 7. Okay, the rustling of pages has stopped. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, familiar language from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I'll read from you. I'll read to you. Uh, Sorry, guys. It's the water. Uh, (laughs) On his deathbed, Scotsman David Dixon, okay, 1583 to 1662. This is around the same time as the Council of Trent that we read earlier, which was an anti-Reformation gathering to clarify anti-biblical doctrine. Well known for his commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, was asked by the friends gathered around him what he was thinking. So he was, in his last moments, they said, what's on your mind? Dixon replied, I have taken all of my bad deeds and put them on a heap. And I have taken my good deeds as well, and I have put them on the same heap. And I have run away from that heap into the arms of Jesus. I die in peace. May that be our final desire to abandon our works and trust wholly in the finished work of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have revealed this great mystery to lowly folk like us. We are altogether unworthy of you, God, and at this moment we remain altogether unworthy of you, and yet you have saved us by grace alone. You are saving us from grace alone, and you will save us by grace alone at the coming of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have completely accomplished salvation in your Son, and that you have made yourself known to us in him in the God-man, in the perfect Son of God, God incarnate, God in human flesh, that we may behold him in the pages of Scripture and that we might come to you through him, honor you through him, see you and know you through him, and have eternal life through him. We thank you, God, that you have promised us rest, that Jesus has offered rest to those who will come to him, not the burden of law, not the slavery of works, God, but rest. We thank you that his obedience is now our obedience, that his works are now our works, that his life is now our life, and we have life in him and life eternal. We give you all the glory, Father, all the thanksgiving, all the praise. You are worthy to be praised for what you have done, and our hope is completely and solely in you. 
May we rejoice in that this season and always. May we be reminded of that this season and always, that the work is done. We take great courage. We take great hope in the eternal reality that is fixed, that we will rise on the last day in glory with you forever. We give you thanks and praise in your son's name. Amen.